Hello and welcome to the Gradient Podcast. We interview various people who research, build, or use AI, including academics, engineers, artists, entrepreneurs, and more. I'm your host, Andrei Karankov, a PhD candidate at the Stanford Vision and Learning Lab. In this episode, I'm excited to be interviewing Professor Percy Leong. Professor Leong is an associate professor of computer science at Stanford University, having gotten his bachelor's from MIT and his PhD from UC Berkeley, and is also the director of the Center for Research on Foundation Models. His research spans many topics in machine learning and natural language processing, including robustness, interoperability, semantics, and reasoning. He's also a strong proponent of reproducibility through the creation of CodaLab worksheets. He has gotten many awards, including the Presidential Early Career Award for Scientists and Engineers, the IJCAI Computers and FOD Award, and NSF Career Award, and many paper awards at various uh, conferences. So needless to say, I'm quite excited to have this interview. Thank you, Percy, for joining us. Thank you, Andre. I'm really happy to be here. And as always, uh, just to give some context, we always like to hear kind of uh, how you got into AI initially, how you got interested in AI and how you got into researching AI. Yeah. So um, looking back, um, you know, I think a lot like many of us, I was intrigued by intelligence and the possibility of embodying that intelligence in that kind of a, you know, computer program. Um, but, you know, this is back in high school, but I didn't really know how to go about approaching it. Um, so I did my undergrad at MIT, and my first foray into research was in theoretical computer science. I was lucky to be advised by Nati Srebro, who now is at um, ETI working on uh, learning theory. Um, at the time, we were really interested in approximate algorithms. Um, we worked on these uh, objects called, you know, hypertrees, and, um, and that really was a really formative experience for me because for the first time I was working on problems where no one knew the answer. I still remember this time when I went to the office and discovered, found an answer to a problem. And unlike, you know, having worked on problem sets where you get the satisfaction, I solved the problem. This was different because like no one in the world knew the answer uh, that I knew. So that was like one maybe really memorable um, moment. Um, so as time went on, um, did a bunch of work on these hypertrees, and the this provided a little bit of a segue into machine learning because Nati did his PhD with Tom Yakula at MIT, and we were interested in learning Markov networks. Um, so, giving a bunch of data, how do you build uh, graphic model structures that capture um, the data as much as possible? Um, and then that kind of transitioned to my master's, where I um, was advised by Michael Collins, um, who was interested in applying machine learning ideas to NLP. Um, and this was really fascinating to me because um, I had always been interested in language. and uh, But what I had learned before was um, more symbolic kind of AI. How do you construct parse trees um, um, kind of symbolically using grammars and rules? Um, and here at that time, you know, Michael was uh, really uh, pushing, kind of thinking about NLP in terms of, you know, language as, uh, you know, high-dimensional vector spaces. And this mm -hmm. kind of provided a really nice connection between an interest, which is processing language, with um, more of the math and the theory side. 
Um, and this was uh, 2009 or roughly then? Uh, I'm older than that, so <laughs> just 2005. Okay, um, so this was this was kind of before this became the norm. It was pretty pretty soon after some of the early papers on uh, thinking of that in most sense. Although I'm sure there's prior work as well. Yeah. So uh, so statistical NLP had been around since the early 90s, but I think much of the 90s there was still um, you know, I think uh, some debate about you know whether how much kind of structure you want, and um, around two thousand, the early two thousands, it was when a lot of the discriminative models um, started coming online with the perceptron and SVMs and and so on um, in NLP, and that's kind of the the realm that we were in. Um, so yeah, it's kind of interesting reflecting on those days because it was very different, not quite, you know, the, the eighties, but it was, it was so quite different. But one thing that was, um, interesting is that even back then I was very interested in, um, the use of unlabeled data to help supervise tasks. So this might sound familiar to many of us because it is just a, one of these age old good ideas that, um, people keep on thinking about and keep on trying to do for um, and back then it wasn't BERT or GPT or any of these, um, neural models. Um, but we were exploring this idea, um, which had been developed actually in IBM in the early nineties called Brown clustering. Um, and the idea was basically you take, um, text and you fit a, HM, a certain type of HMM, um, on it, um, where each word can, uh, has to be assigned to a cluster. There was like some, um, special algorithm to estimate these HMMs. And that was another kind of moment for me where I realized, wow, this is really cool because you take this raw text, you learn these clusters, and then you look at the clusters and it's, it, it manages to figure out all the city names and all of the, you know, the days of the week and all of the materials or something. It's like, how does it you know, do that? And um, so, you know, that, that's what's kind of on my mind and, um, you know, fasting, fast forwarding a bit, um, you know, that those moments, um, the theoretical work, I think has always um, implied to me as kind of a sense of desire to understand and be rigorous. And also this kind of use of unlabeled data and, you know, self-supervised, well, I guess we didn't call it self-supervised learning back then, but this unsupervised learning was, um, was kind of influential in the way I thought about a lot of my research going forward. And uh, I guess to expand a bit, what did you find particularly interesting about language and this early research? What did you find, you know, uh, was it sort of discovery g given that language is so rich and, you know, infinite? <laughs> was, was that what drew you to it? Yeah. So language, I think, is really special, right? I mean, if you look historically, um, you know, language kind of coincides with the rise of and flourishing of human civilization. It's allow, what allows people to kind of communicate and organize and transfer ideas and write them down and pass them down in a generation that just wasn't you know, possible before. Um, but if you think about language, it's really weird, right? Here I am talking. What I'm really doing is I'm sending some you know, vibrations through the air and this causes your neurons to do certain things and causes you to kind of uh, um, behave in a certain way. So you think about it, it's, it's really, you know, odd how language is so powerful in, in a way. Um, I really like this XKCD comic. Um, 
I think it's called like I could care less. Um, but you know, it's a really aptly, you know, as usual, it kind of captures thinking about. I, I remember the quote was like glorify. It's language that's kind of glorified chaos. Um, it's this evolved system of communication where you just utter some stuff and it has ability to kind of really do complex things. And you know, a lot of language is um, not really about the words, but also about like, you know, understanding of the world and like shared beliefs and so on, because there's just too little information kind of actually coming across. But at the same time, it's very you know, structured, you know, even though, um, you know, parts trees are only approximation, I mean, taking a linguistics class, you begin to like really appreciate like there's actually some really fascinating um, this logical you know, structures um, in how grammar works um, that somehow emerged from you know this kind of messy process. So you know that's why I think language is really fascinating in itself, um, and then the ability to have uh, you know, computers understand and interact with. Uh, humans via language um, that has a lot of you know, practical, uh, I think, implications because I think it's you know in a in some sense one of the bottlenecks for uh, using technology is like being to uh, describe what you want. And natural language is well a natural way of communicating thoughts at a high level, um, and I see the task as communicating your high-level ideas and having an automatic way of translating them into code in some sense is kind of one of the central problems of how to harness, um, you know, computers. So that led to a lot of work on, you know, semantic parsing, which I can talk about later. Yeah, definitely. I think a lot of us programmers wish we didn't have to really spell it out for the computers what to do. So uh, it would be nice if that was possible. Uh, so yeah, jumping forward, what did you start focusing on uh, in, in your PhD? And uh, I guess at one point, did you really turn towards semantic parsing? Yeah. So when I started my uh, PhD, it was at Berkeley with um, Michael Jordan and Dan Klein. So I had always had this kind of two hats of being more grounded in more theoretical machine learning and also having a more applied side of me wanting to build NLP systems that work. Um, so Coming off of masters, I was really fascinated by unsupervised learning. Like, how could you take raw text and um, extract structure out of it? Um, and if you think about how you know babies learn language, it's not by supervising with parse trees or anything. It's um, you know fairly uh, raw. I mean, you know, put aside the fact that there's much more like grounding and and so on, but um, but but the, the spirit of it is like you have raw text or raw multimodal information and you want to learn something about the world. So that problem is something I still believe is like a really important thing and hasn't left us. Um, and so at the time I was started interested in grammar induction um, because, you know, parsing was like a, a big thing um, more so than now. Um, but ultimately I think, it just became really hard. And for the reason is that if you train a model that tries to explain the data, you know, the data it tries to, and you say like, explain the data in terms of parse trees. Well, there's a lot of things that 
explain why the data is the way it is. It's not just the grammatical structure. It's also, you know, the semantics of what's being said. It's, um, you know, cross-sentential, you know, information, you know, as well. So um, that agenda, you know, I got a little bit um, disillusioned with a pure kind of grammar induction approach. And then I found um, semantic parsing, which is this idea of mapping natural language into these logical forms, which you can think about as little computer programs, such that when you execute them, they produce some sort of behavior. So a canonical example is um, question answering, where you say, you know, what's the second tallest mountain in Europe? And you can map that into a SQL query um, that such that if you execute on a database, you get the answer. And so, that's how our assistants work uh, for the most part still, I think. Yeah, so so the hard part there is what the, the problem formulation that I uh, was pursuing was if I just gave you a bunch of question-answer pairs, so um, you know, what's the, um, the capital of um, you know, France, Paris, and, and so on, could you automatically infer the latent structure, the latent logical form, such that it allowed you to solve this task? So this kind of um, satisfied my desire to do kind of uns uh, um, grammar induction in some sense or unsupervised learning because you have late variables, which I thought was always so you know, fascinating, with a, coupled with um, an actual application because in the end you get question answering systems and you would build things, you know, and later I went to um, you know, Google and spent some time at Semantic Machines at Microsoft and you know, we built real systems that um, get used and based on kind of uh, these these ideas, so that part was also kind of really uh, gratifying. Um, so so yeah, so that's the kind of the transition into uh, this all this work on semantic parsing, which we've worked on for um, you know quite some time, and from about uh, to end of my PhD, which was 2010 2011 to maybe 2017. Um, wow. Yeah, that's uh, good in your time. It's interesting. You finished your PhD just as deep learning was sort of starting to take off. So I imagine through that timescale, uh, you know, you saw kind of these methods evolve. And I wonder uh, how much progress was made in that time span as you worked, you know, five, six years on this problem. Uh, I imagine the methods kind of uh, evolved and yeah, just curious yeah it's it's interesting because during the early 2010s like 2011 2012 uh, we know a computer vision was completely transformed um, and speech as well um, language came a little bit later because there's always this feeling that well language is higher level it's a discrete um, and words were already very good um, representations kind of by construction, like human constructed words to be meaningful. So the extra feature learning that you get on top um, was less than if you had started with pixels. Um, um, so, but yeah, in the field, it was definitely uh, emerging. Um, the word vectors were very popular um, you know, back then. And then you had like the seek to seek uh, models in 2014, which kind of transformed the way that machine translation was done. And then it was kind of just like, you know, the momentum build. And I think we're like- took over a field yeah, almost. Just like, yeah. just like uh, people were predicted. Um, so for semantic parsing, it was 
actually we didn't do um you know really neural stuff until 2016 um partly because i think a lot of the data sets were very small and most of the work i was uh you know focused on was actually figuring out how to acquire you know data sets because unlike you know image classification where you can crowdsource it much more easily just get people to label images um you can't just get people to write down SQL queries for you know, <laughs> natural language queries. And even the, where the, the queries are um, is, is an open question, right? Because you don't have a natural distribution of people saying, asking questions to a, uh, a computer because that thing you know, doesn't exist. Whereas a lot of like machine translation and images, they're, genera- they're data that's generated organically for other humans to consume. Um, so this, this kind of data that's more specific to uh, human computer interaction, I think, is much rare. So a lot of the effort was spent on on that. And uh, but in you know, 2016, it was kind of clear that well, you want to do seek to seek or you know uh, models, um, and, and we did that. And since then, I guess the field of um, you know semantic parsing or program synthesis is you know all neural as and then another turning point later which we can talk about later is like what you know with models like gpt3 or codex is just kind of a completely different level mm, yeah now your gpt3 can just spit out the sql from its language model in some yeah. cases um yeah so uh, moving a bit forward you had all this work on semantic uh, parsing but as we said in the intro now your interests are pretty wide-ranging on robustness interoperability semantics reasoning your your work does span uh, across sort of different uh, areas so how did that come about uh, is it sort of over the years uh, as you were a professor you just found these things interesting and expanded into these being your areas of focus? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, a lot of it is also driven by students. Um, you know, uh, PhD students, they're young and energetic, and I think they pull me in different you know, directions. Um, so, for example, you know, I have all this line on work, work on robustness. I think, you know, it's really Jacob Steinhardt that really kind of got um, interested in this, and we started talking about it, and then we started doing some work. And then, you know, once you have some work, then other students they say, "Hey, that looks interesting," and then it kind of just evolves. Um, you know, of, of course, I do think that these uh, broad directions are really important. Um, robustness is, um, you know, a thing that uh, you know I've always kind of bothered me. To, in a, in a bit, right? For example, adversary examples. When I first saw that in, back in 2014, you take an image, you perturb every pixel by a little bit, and visually imperceptible, but it fools any off-the-shelf uh, classifier. And even if you tried, if you know, even if you know the adversary and you try to guard against it, it's like not that easy to get robustness. Yeah, a lot of people found that. Uh weird that you know you as as a human you see it and it's not even changed <laughs> but the machine learning spits out something crazy like a panda is a dog yeah so yeah that makes sense and that that just got me thinking like whoa i mean if we are deploying these systems in the wild which is um you know becoming more and more the case we really need to 
understand what's happening with these these models and figure out a way to make them you know robust. And not that I'm terribly worried specifically about like these um, you know L infinity norm ball attacks um, that are represented by adversarial examples, but this general idea that we don't really know what we're you know doing in some sense. Um, and and that that aspect has also kind of changed over the last you know decade where in grad school we were just trying to get anything to work at all. Um, you know things were like accuracies were low and you couldn't really deploy systems and we had to deploy a system it had to be pared back down so um, so much uh, to make it actually work in the real world. And now we have just like these you know end-to-end -end systems that are you know, train on tons of data and they're really, you know, good and accurate, uh, but they have incredibly odd uh, failure modes to, you know, put up lightly. So this got me really interested in thinking about robustness and how do we both evaluate and assess whether our learning algorithms are actually producing reasonable models and also how do you, um, you know, make models more robust. I see. Yeah. And it, yeah, I guess it makes sense that uh, a lot of your research is guided by students. Um, maybe this is common. I was I was pretty surprised to see you had a paper at Coral, the conference on robot learning. Uh, and yeah, there you had a student that's co-advised by you and Dorsa Satig. So uh, <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. And this is language kind of across robotics. Yeah. So it's cool to see how that kind of happens. Yeah, that was a really cool um, collaboration with uh, Sid Karamachetti, who's a co-advised student. And, you know, he's interested in language and robotics. So he's co-advised and I'm learning a lot more about robotics um, now, which has been, which has been fun. Uh, I think at this point, maybe half of my students are kind of co-advised with uh, people ranging from robotics to more theory and, um, uh, and NLP and HCI. So it's it's actually pretty um, fun to learn about all these areas that are adjacent to my core NLP and ML interests. Oh, yeah, that's that's really interesting. That's, that's a pretty high ratio from what I know, at least in my lab. So that's cool. Um, yeah, and then to continue with a higher level context. Um, yeah, so you focus on robustness. Of course, this year, one of the big things was foundation models. So yeah, maybe you can round out our understanding of what are your main areas that you're focusing now in your lab and sort of what's happening, I guess. Yeah, so foundation models has definitely been uh, kind of occupied most of my kind of uh, brain space uh, this last year. Um, yeah, so there's a lot I could say here. I mean, maybe to kind of a, tr a, a unusual transition from robustness, I will say that um, a lot of the work that I did around 2016 to maybe 2020 was more kind of a bit pessimistic, assuring that, well, okay, um, you know, models fail and uh, that there are all these, these problems and we were trying to find interventions, but, you know, it wasn't clear what kind of leverage you could get. Um, and you could do adversarial training for adversarial examples, but that uh, introduced other trade-offs. Um, um, and then again, you know, it, it became clear that unlabeled data was um, a valuable um, you know, tool to use here. 
you know, has always been with me since I know my masters. Um, and foundation models in, in particular, I remember the, the clip paper from OpenAI where they um, demonstrated how they could train clip, which is you know, a foundation model on zero ImageNet examples and still get comparable accuracy to a model that was trained on you know, a million ImageNet examples. And furthermore, it was um, robust to all these kind of alternative distributions um, whereas the image that model was was not. And the clip, if I remember correctly, basically just matches sort of words mm -hmm. to images, sees if you know the word matches the image, and then to classify, you kind of just see for a given image what words it thinks match instead yeah. of having a classification model. And yeah, exactly. It, it was really interesting to see that it worked yeah. uh, really well and kind of in a different way. Yeah, so the, the aspect of foundation models, I think, are is important is that it's trained on broad data. Um, so the definition of a foundation model is a model that's trained on broad data, usually in a self-supervised way at scale, um, that can be adapted to a bunch of a wide range of downstream tasks. Right. So this broad data allows you to the model to see all these different um, parts of the distribution. And the, the surprising thing is that even if it's not supervised, it learns enough structure uh, or representations um, out about the world that these are then useful for you know, downstream um, you know, tasks. Um, and the idea that you can train such a model and it's effective is just you know, pretty, pretty interesting you know, to me. And certainly when I started uh, um, my uh, master's or PhD, I would have thought anything like that would be possible. Yeah, yeah. I remember deep learning in general when it was in 2014 when I saw the image captioning work. I think that was the thing that blew my mind. Like, wow, yeah, I can do that. Yeah. And nowadays, that's that's you know kind of uh, not a big deal. Yeah. And then I, I guess I would be remiss not to mention the other side of foundation models, which is I think maybe has. Uh, you know, kind of a greater urgency, which is that, you know, it, it's kind of interesting that foundation models help with robustness, but they're also in themselves have many of the same problems that we have already known about. They're prone to adversary examples. They have, you know, biases in them, and we don't really understand how they, you know, work. Um, they're not transparent. So what we've been trying to do um, is to also think about that, part of things, like how can we make foundation models more, you know, reliable? Um, for example, like the generative models, they can spew out toxic you know, content. And it's pretty much an open question, how do you actually um, prevent that, you know, from happening? So, so there's kind of both the opportunities and risks of foundation models, which we, you know, write in our um, very long paper uh, that we put out in August. Um, but, but also, I, I think it's been interesting to um, look at all the different aspects of you know, foundation models from you know, the effects on um, you know, the harms that it can induce, um, the, any security risks. One thing that's really interesting, so we've worked on data poisoning in, in the past where you have a model that uh, attacker can inject examples into your training data. Um, and can cause your model to do bad things. Um, and normally this is not like 
kind of like worst case scenario, like, okay, if, as long as you don't let people access your training, you're fine. But, you know, if you look at what's happening right now, these foundation models are trained on any public data. You just scrape GitHub. Um, and so anyone can just put something on GitHub, malicious piece of code and piece of training data. Um, and maybe Codex, uh, you know, uses it to suggest options. And I mean, that's, that's kind of scary, right? Um, so data poisoning is, becomes much more of a real uh, thing with the way that we're, you know, building foundation models and uh, applying them. Um, so th that, that requires certain, uh, certainly uh, some amount of attention. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. GPT-3 famously was trained on a huge swath of the internet and it, yeah, it could then like write code. And that was one of the kind of surprising things is it could do all these things and be applied for all these tasks um, that weren't planned for necessarily. But then the other flip side, as you said, is it also learned to be biased and, yeah. you know, think Muslims are terrorists and all these uh, really nasty things. Yeah, which is, you know, not maybe surprising given the data that it's trained on. Um, and I think in general that um, there needs to be interventions at not just like kind of a modeling level, but also practices about how we collect and curate data and maybe there are ways to get at these capabilities without relying on kind of indiscriminate you know, scrapes of the, the internet. So a lot, mm -hmm. of, a lot of open questions here um, to address. Yeah, it's interesting how I think this is very new. I think GPT-3, I don't know, when do you think foundation models even began in terms of training on these huge swaths of data? Usually it was like curated benchmarks in deep learning. So is it sort of a new phenomena of just the last couple of years? Um, everything is moving so quickly. So inevitably a lot of things are fairly recent. Um, I think, you know, BERT maybe is a, I, I think of it as kind of a turning point for um, you know, LLP, although they're precursors like um, you know, uh, Elmo and, um, and um, UML Fit. Um, but or even if you go back to like word effect right? Word effect was oh, you know, just word vectors, but they were also trained along the axis of training on unsupervised data. I mean, that has been around a long time. And actually, you can even go back to like brown clustering, which we were just trained on arbitrary text. Um, not, not internet scrapes, but more news articles, but you could imagine if we had the computer kind of scale up um, more. Yeah, like <laughs> the foundations, the key ideas were in place and maybe the new thing is just the scale as of a lot of deep learning, yeah. I think, yeah. It's the, yeah, it's the scale and the kind of the ambition of the tasks, right? Like I think generation changes the game quite a bit because I think a lot of the tasks where like you're using it as features and they're like a very small part of your pipeline. Like you're solving some like sentiment classification tasks. Yeah, you include these features, but you still have your labeled data. And that's by the large driving kind of what your your model behavior is. But now you can like with zero shot or few shot learning, most of your signal is coming from um, just the uh, the you know non-labeled data. Um, because like if you're providing three examples, that there's no way like you're really providing that much guidance to the model at that point. So there's a huge leap of faith of um, just trusting that whatever was in that original data was actually through this kind of uh, mystical you know, <laughs> training process leads to models that actually are 
you know, useful. And empirically, it seems promising, but I, I think this is a very raw technology right now. Mm. And I think uh, there's a lot of room for making it more reliable. Yeah, and that, I think, was a large part of the point of the huge report on foundation models that, you know, we don't really understand it. It has all these weaknesses. And so we need to build a stronger foundation on top of which we can then apply and use these things. Was that kind of the main motivation or one of the main motivations in doing that? Yeah, it was trying to kind of consolidate a lot of the, the thinking that we had around on the importance and the role of foundation models. I think if you look at GBD3, people look at different you know, aspects of it, like the, is it about the generation or is it about like the different tasks can solve. And I, I think the reason we chose a name for foundation models and like wrote a whole report and create a whole center around it is because we did think that this was a, kind of a paradigm shift in the way that AI systems are being built. And uh, not just specific to NLP, but I think, you know, uh, started kind of in NLP, but I think it's going to percolate um, to many other areas, uh, sub, subfields within AI. Um, and it's, if you think about it, the, you know, the traditional way that you build things is you start with, if you're doing machine learning at all, is you, you start with like getting the data, maybe set up some a data pipeline. And it's more kind of task driven, um, you just define what you want, but now it's, it's much more bottom up. Like the first thing you do, um, is maybe you get one of these foundation models. If you can get access to it, um, download bird or use it to GPT-3 open, uh, API and, uh, you work with that. So it's a very different, and maybe you label a few examples. So I think it changes the workflow and you could imagine also this having a lot of impacts in you know in industry where traditionally maybe have multiple teams working on like machine translation, question answering, centering classification. And now they there's this kind of pressure and opportunity to kind of share a lot of infrastructure, like having one model that can power a lot of different things, which itself is, you know, anytime you centralize and, and you increase leverage, it can go really well or it could go, you know, very poorly depending on how you how you play things. So, so I think that's why, you know, I think it's a big deal because I think it amplifies um, the effect of the technology that we're building in a much more radical way. Than mm. Yeah. And the trend has been that because of the amount of compute necessary, just resources, these foundation models have been pretty much being trained by industry. And obviously industry has its own set of incentives which may not be ideally suited to being careful uh, about this. So was that part of the motivation for establishing the center in addition to writing the report, kind of getting academia a bit yeah. of a <laughs> start in there? Yeah, I mean, I think part of the motivation was definitely not only these things are important, but we think that academia should have a kind of a strong role in shaping these things. Because companies, I mean, they are incentivized to make their products better and no one wants the products to generate toxic content, um, but ultimately they are driven by you know uh, product necessity. I mean, they're a business after all; they have their certain goals, and the way they think about things might not be completely aligned with uh, you know our perspectives from you know academia. 
Um, so I do think that there's some overlap, but I think it's necessary um, to have kind of a, you know, a, a separate entity um, in academia kind of uh, over looking at the process, thinking, um, analyzing, studying these models, making them better. Um, and that's kind of what we've been trying to do is thinking about angles which are um, that academia with its kind of interdisciplinary nature. Uh, so CRFM is uh, you know, what has about 200 uh, students, postdocs, faculty, researchers across 10 different departments. So it's you know, very interdisciplinary more so than any uh, most other kind of uh, centers or organizations. And so, so I think there's a lot that one can, the questions one can answer given that interdisciplinary breadth that is um, not really the focus if you're just kind of focused on scaling up and building models and pursuing you know, you know, products. Mm, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And in some ways, uniquely suited to academia because you know you have all these researchers and we want to ask questions. Um, and yeah, speaking of questions, um, I guess, what are you focusing on or, or finding interesting? Is it mainly the robustness aspect? And are there any like answers we, we have already, do you think? Yeah, so robustness is definitely an important thing that uh, much of my group is you know, working on. Um, uh, using uh, foundation models uh, for robustness um, is, is one definitely topic. But it, um, to put a finer point on it, I think the way that you adapt uh, foundation models um, matters. So the standard approach is fine-tuning, where you just uh, take a foundation model like BERT, um, and you just fine-tune and everything. And it turns out that uh, this is good for accuracy, um, usually, but it's actually not as good for if you care about kind of robustness or uh, accuracy on um, out-of-domain uh, data. Um, and this is because you're kind of overfitting to the, the domain. And what we found recently is that um, in a lot of cases, if you just uh, do linear programming where you only um, tune some a small fraction of the parameters, um, you can actually do much better on out of domain generalization because you're kind of not messing up the, uh, all the representation that you learned. Um, intuitively, this kind of makes sense because if you only have a small amount of training data and you're fine tuning this like massive model, you're just going to thrash or send the parameter wherever, and it's not going to be kind of coherent when you, um, it's going to overfit. Um, so you, the trick is how can you get the best of both worlds? You want to have the flexibility of fine tuning, but also um, have good out-domain generalization, and we have been exploring some you know, methods around that, both for kind of computer vision and NLP um, tasks. So that's that's one kind of uh, area that we're um, really looking into. Got it. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and then just to jump back a bit, you know, we don't focus entirely on GPT-3 and its descendants and all of this hype. Um, yeah, you've also, of course, been working on other things um, with robustness. And I was 
found it really interesting to see some of your papers here of selective classification can magnify disparities and, uh, you know, improving group proponents about training group information. So maybe can you just highlight a few of the projects you've had recently and, and some of the insights you've gained? Yeah, so there's a cluster of work which has a flavor um, if you try to do reasonable things, you will actually surprisingly hurt your accuracy. Um, so the one paper you mentioned was uh, on selective classification. This was work with Eric Jones, Shuriam, Pawe, and Nanya, um, which appeared, uh, I guess, this, this year. Um, and the idea is that selective classification is usually a tool for um, uh, basically not predicting when you don't know the answer. Like you look at the confidence of a classifier, and if it's too small, then you say, I, I don't know. And condition on saying, I know, your accuracy, your selective accuracy should be higher um, than normal. So this works um, generally, even if you use like the, the scores out of the classifiers. Um, but what we found was really surprising that if you look at um, the accuracy of particular groups, um, of maybe demographic groups, um, doing selective classification, normally if you look at increasing the threshold, you're more and more kind of uh, stringent, your actress selective accuracy goes up. But in certain cases, your selective accuracy for some groups can actually go down. And the first time we saw this, we were like, whoa, this is, this is uh, really it's surprising. Because you should have uncertainty, you shouldn't answer, right? Yeah. yeah so that, somehow, like doing this very reasonable thing is causing your model to not just like, not do well, but like actually get worse. Um, it doesn't happen all the time, uh, clearly, but there are examples, especially from minority groups where the classification accuracy is already low. And also it's kind of, uh, there's um, the features are kind of in conflict with the majority group, then you're just kind of driving them even worse and worse. So this is like a pretty alarm bell. Like we, we should be monitoring these things um, and uh, not be very careful. Um, another example, uh, maybe worth pointing out is uh, with Freshde, uh, who just graduated, she's now at uh, Microsoft Research, on um, uh, removing spurious correlations, uh, spurious features, and showing how they can actually hurt. This is another thing that was kind of surprising to me. So you imagine a very simple kind of setting where you have this feature that by construction, it's like synthetic data, you know that it's not... Um, you know, helpful for making the prediction and you remove it. So conventional wisdom would say that that should help, right? Because you're um, removing extra features that weren't helping anyway. But it turns out that this is not the case. You can construct settings which are not too crazy that shows that even if you uh, do this, which seems like a good thing, um, you can actually hurt your accuracy. And this happens when in this kind of over-parameterized setting you have a lot more features than you know, training examples. Um, so, so there are a few other examples of this, um, like adding another one is um, with um, DTM and Michael and others uh, where you add um, do data augmentation. So we think data augmentation is a good thing uh, because you're adding more examples that are valid. As long as you assume your data augmenter is actually you know, generating valid examples. Um, but you, we show that in certain cases, this can actually you know, hurt your accuracy. You're giving the model correct information. And even if the model has the model capacity to 
learn this information and the optimization is fine, you can actually still um, hurt your accuracy. Um, so these th three examples of um, once line of work or style of work in my group, which is trying to probe a little bit deeper and understand how maybe in, you know, things which we think are intuitive are actually maybe not, a, uh, not unanimously uh, um, helpful. Mm, yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. <laughs> They're surprising things to me, so that's cool to hear about. And then just to touch on one more thing, uh, aside from your research, uh, as we mentioned, you also care about reproducibility and have been, I think, a big proponent and, and one of the people who sort of created CodaLab. So could you just sort of give us an overview of what that is and, and sort of uh, how that came about? And Yeah. Yeah. So Colab Worksheets is this uh, platform that we created in 2013. It's still live. Um, and the mission is to um, accelerate research in a reproducible way. Um, and the, the idea is very simple. You can go to Colab, you can upload data sets and um, you know, code, and you can run arbitrary commands in a Docker image, and it can maintain the, the command and the provenance of what you did. And so you have kind of the, the, uh, the result there. Um, I, I think this, the motivation for Colab comes um, you know, from various experiences in grad school. One is that I always, I have always been a big proponent of like building tools that help me go um, faster. Um, sometimes it's maybe you know, this procrastination. <laughs> you might just mm -hmm. spend five hours writing this script that could have uh, saved me the one hour of tedious time. But um, but I've always been a big proponent of tools. And I, I think um, I built uh, some experiment management systems, which I think allowed me to like run a lot of jobs and iterate quickly, which I think was really helpful for just trying out ideas. Um, and another piece of this, so, so that's more about efficiency. Another piece is that I've often been frustrated, as I'm sure all of us have been, about lack of reproducibility in the field. Like you, you know, you have this result in a paper and you can't reproduce it, even if you have the code sometimes um, and the data, because like, oh, it was a different hyperparameter setting or a different version of the code or whether or, or whatever. So, um, and often I, I think there's this kind of folklore that. Well, if you want to make things more reproducible, it actually slows you down because now you have to like do all this extra work. Um, but my hypothesis and the whole motivation for building CodeLab is that the two are actually synergistic if you have the right set of tools. So you think about GitHub, right? Git, you know, the first time you use it or maybe when it wasn't as popular, it's like, what is the thing that's getting in my way? I have to like run all these extra arcane commands to, uh, like, I just want to like edit my code and keep it local, you know, yeah, keep my TXT file. And, <laughs> and then but, but we all realize that this is indispensable, right? I mean, Git is all about kind of reproducibility at some level. And it's the only thing that allows you to share code and have multiple people working on it. Like without version control, you can't have large teams working on things at all. So, so a lot of the kind of the thinking of CodeLab is like kind of a git for experiments. What's the analog for running, you know, uh, reproducible AI experiments? And the idea is that we have these tools that allow you to run 
commands and just keep track of data sets and models. And, um, and there's no question like what version of the code you use to reproduce this result because like by construction, you look at the result and that's where the, you know, you look at follow the back pointer and say, like, okay, that's the To that's be the really surprising if you get a different result in yeah. that case. Yeah, so I mean, I, ideally you would have like here with the raw data, you do pre-processing, um, there's like pre-processed data, that's like these things in CodeLab, it's called a bundle, so an immutable file directory. And then you can do various, uh, you know, upload various algorithms, you can train models, and these models can become like other assets that people can do used to make, evaluate out of their own main robustness or do probing experiments or whatever. And anything that's kind of generated from it, like a figure, you can actually trace back the full provenance of all the way back to the raw data. So, mm. so it, it, it's, a, it's a very kind of strong notion of, kind of reproducibility. Yeah, well, one, one okay, cool example is um, mm. you know, in 2017, we had this uh, paper on adversarial examples for reading comprehension. So we had just put out a data set uh, squad uh, for question answering in 2016. We have a hidden test set. And in order for people to evaluate and hit and set set, they had to upload their model to CodeLab. So as a result, um, we had all of these models that were running on, uh, on CodeLab. And then Robin, who is my a student at the time, uh, he wanted to understand, like, are these models really robust to you know, adversary examples? And because CodeLab had already had these models, it was nearly kind of trivial to just say, okay, now let's swap in the alternative <laughs> data set and just run it and see what happens. Mm. And literally it's like one, one code lab command that allows you to, it's called CL mimic that allows you to just uh, do this kind of counterfactual. What happens if I have a different test set and it runs the same code in the same environment. Um, and as a result, we were able to do that project very you know, quickly. Whereas otherwise it would have been like a lot of haggling authors for getting their models and trying to reproduce results and so on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's funny. It makes me think about where I work reinforcement learning. <laughs> it's, it's hard. It, there's a lot of that. Um, yeah, so it makes a lot of sense. Uh, and with that, I think we've done a good job of covering uh, a lot of what you're doing. It was very interesting. So thank you again for joining us for this interview. Yeah, thank you. It was my pleasure. And once again, this is The Gradient Podcast. Check out our associate magazine over at thegradient.pub and head to the Gradient Substack to subscribe. If you enjoyed this interview, please support us by sharing this podcast with your friends, subscribing and reviewing it on Apple and elsewhere. We would really appreciate it. We still don't have that many reviews and we would love to hear what people think and how we could improve. And uh, yeah, even even if you don't, thank you.